Welcome to Life Source Church. We are so glad you found us. We hope that you will experience God with us as you hear the preaching of the Word. I, I fear failure. So for me, for me, I, New Year's resolutions really are not anything that I'm interested in. And I don't know about you, but some of you might have even started one this year. And um, it's, what, I don't know, five days since the beginning of the year, and you've already failed it, right? So you've already thrown that one out, and you're planning your new one for next year. I thought it'd be fun, just for the sake of it, um, I am going to share with you the top reasons, or the top, rather, New Year's resolutions, and this is according to USA.gov. Are you ready? Not, not a surprise to any of, of you, uh, or, and myself included. The first one is lose weight. Uh, volunteer to help others comes in at second. Quit smoking. Get a better education. Get a better job. Save money. Get fit. Eat healthy food. Manage stress. Manage debt take a trip. I thought that was an interesting one. And this one really kind of thought that really threw me off. My wife will like this one. Reduce, reuse, and recycle. <laughs> Apparently you need to have a New Year's resolution for that. And uh, drink less alcohol. And I thought that was really interesting that those were the top reasons. And you know, when I thought about it, this is really the best the world has to offer is kind of a New Year's resolution. Start your year off right. And uh, kind of categorizes itself under two headings. First is become a better person. Do whatever you can to become a better person. And then the second one is if you can't become a better person, you might as well become a better looking person. And so, you know, just at least to give the facade that you actually are a better person by the way you look. So, so I've got some slides to kind of give us a kind of visual scenario of it. That's our, that's our opening slide. Now, I feel bad for the guys in the back. They don't have any notes to help me with our slides today. So, so we'll just try and go along with them. But the first one is become a better person, you know. Now, many of you are Cub Scout leaders. This isn't a poke. This is just the best thing I could find to give a visual of a becoming a better person, is becoming a Cub Scout leader. Or, if you want to become a better looking person, we, don't, we, we want to stop being like this guy, right? And we want to start to look like maybe one of these people. You know, pretty woman in a dress, or that guy for the men. <laughs> now, I don't know any, I, I know no man here will say it out loud, but I'll be happy to, to say that now, although I don't necessarily have to have that shirt, I want to be able to wear that shirt if I so please. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> that's, that's kind of what I'm looking at, I'm looking for. So it really kind of goes into one or two categories. Either you're working to become a better person or working to become a better looking person. And we're going to talk about New Year's resolutions. And I know New Year's resolutions, maybe some of you today are thinking, God, you know, Jeff, this is church. And uh, man, I, I really don't care to talk about New Year's resolutions. I want to learn about God, I want to study the Bible, and I want to live for Him. And to each of those things I would say amen, and that's exactly what we're going to do. We are here to study about the Lord, we're here to serve the Lord, and we're here to walk with the Lord. And I believe that the Scriptures speak very timely to, very, to, to, to our lives, and so there's timeless truths that, truths that speak very specifically to our lives, and I believe that the truth of the Word of God speaks to our culture. And so, New Year's resolutions are something that, the cult that our culture has developed as a way to kind of deal with the emptiness and the things that we struggle with and the things that we want to change. And I believe God's Word, we can actually look at God's Word and see a far better resolution uh, to have. And we're going to talk about that today. And to do that, I'm actually going to throw you a bit of a curveball. You probably really aren't expecting this today. I mean, first of all, you probably looked at the, the message and you saw keep your shirt on and you thought that's kind of weird. But the thing that we're going to talk about today is peer pressure. And... Uh, I know that that seems a little weird, probably. And some of the high school students, you're probably thinking to yourself, you know, I deal with peer pressure in school. I didn't come to church to hear that. I know, I know how to deal with peer pressure, you know. Become a drug-free community, say no, just say no. Uh, 
you know, don't be a fool, stay in school, that kind of, those kind of mottos. And for you that aren't in high school, for you that aren't in middle school, you know, adults were well removed from high school maybe, you know, in our lives, um, you, probably, you might think that you don't deal with peer pressure on a regular basis, or you think that you, have, that you have dealt with it at this point and you've got a good way of handling it. But I would, I would challenge you with this, that peer pressure actually is something that you guys deal with, each of us deal with on a regular basis. As a matter of fact, we have, we have, we experience it on a daily basis, and not only do we experience it on a daily basis, but we have actually trained ourselves to respond to it, and our response is actually anticipated. We actually anticipate a moment of upcoming peer pressure, an uncomfortable moment, and we have actually trained ourselves to respond to it and avoid it altogether, and we dictate how we're gonna act in that upcoming situation because we wanna avoid it entirely. And you know what's interesting? The scriptures, again, same thing, the scriptures really don't use this term peer pressure, it's a modern term, but the scriptures do describe the event of peer pressure, and they describe it in, in different terminology. They use, these two, uh, they use two different uh, terms. They use fear of the Lord and fear of God, or I'm sorry, fear of people rather and fear of God, or fear of man and fear of, uh, fear of God. It says it this way in Proverbs 29, 25. It says, fearing people is a dangerous trap. But trusting the Lord means safety. And that's really what happens in the moment of peer pressure. In a moment of peer pressure, and, and this could happen to any of us, we, what we do is we get into a moment and, and we are fearing the response from a person. We are fearing either the way they're going to, something they're going to say about us, something they're going to say about the things we're doing. And as a result, we let that dictate our reaction to that. They, we let that dictate the way we act and the things that we do and the things we even think about ourselves. And so as a result, the scriptures say that this is a dangerous trap. And we're going to talk more about why it is. But the antithesis to that, the, the, the answer to it is, is in Psalm 128, verse 1. It says this, it says, Blessed or happy is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. And we're going to talk about what peer pressure is. And I'm going to give you kind of, you might not be convinced still at this point. And so I'm going to give you a couple scenarios of how you actually face peer pressure. Just, just a few. For example... Um, we just left the holidays recently, you know, it was Thanksgiving, and then we had Christmas, and then we had New Year's, and how many of you uh, have family over, and, and, and this is the thing, how many of you have families where there's two things you just don't talk about, the big two, you know, religion and politics, and so you get the family together, and you have this, you have this, uh, you have this, this memory of past Christmases ago, where somebody brought up the current fiscal climate and brought up the current budget plan, and um, next thing you know, it's this conversation amongst the table starts out very cordially among the adults, but eventually the tempers start to raise and people start to get angry and you start hearing yelling and screaming, and the next thing you know, Cousin Vitti is cursing out Cousin Vito in Italian, and he takes that 130, you spent like $135 on shrimp that year, you remember specifically, he takes that bowl of shrimp and in the middle of cursing him, he throws that entire shrimp all over Cousin Vito. And you remember now, from that moment, you remember that very specifically. And so this year, you were in that moment, and you were very specifically remembering that I am not going to be the one to bring up politics this year, because I don't want my $135 shrimp to be ending up on Cousin Vito's head again. That's a moment of peer pressure. That's a moment where you are experiencing the potential moment that could happen, and you want to avoid that, and so you've actually dictated the way you're going to act in that environment. 
Another example could be this. What about a first date? You know, first date is going well, you meet this girl, because I'm a guy, I'm gonna use the, 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 the man as an example. You meet this girl, she asks you to tell you about yourself, and you know, you start talking, and things are going great, and then you bring up this point that you actually have a, a, a real love for Sonny and Cher. And so, because of that, you have all of their, all of their albums on 8-track and record, and as a matter of fact, you even have, you even have a corner of your room where you have actually like have all of your posters from 1978 and 1973 and whenever they were around sometime in the 70s and you had that all there and you've got a nice collection and it's still all plastered up on your wall and then in addition to that every year on the memorial of Sonny Bono's death you actually light a candle and you know what's weird is the fact that she in the middle of that conversation the whole conversation changed and she kind of was very nice oh that's great um i have to go to the bathroom she said and then the next thing you know she didn't come back you talk to your friend the next day you're really confused man i thought it was going well she asked me about herself and then he goes dude you did not tell him about sunny and share did you and don't talk to him about Sonny and Cher. That's not a first date conversation. That's a fourth date, fifth date, maybe after engagement conversation. Maybe that's a conversation that you actually don't have till you carry her over the threshold after the honeymoon, and then she gets to see it, and you go, yeah, this is me. This is who I am. Sorry. That, so the next thing you know, the next, the next first date you're in, you are experiencing that, that, that pressure that, you know what, I can't talk about Sonny and Cher yet. She asked you about yourself and you're starting to share and then the moment where you're gonna share about your love for Sonny and Cher comes, I can't talk about that right now. That's peer pressure because you fear that reaction from, from what's gonna happen because of a past experience. Another could be, you know, the water cooler gossip, right? We all know the water cooler gossip. You need a drink of water, you need a cup of coffee, you go into that place and there it is. There's a group of people talking about the current happenings in the company, and you walk up, and there she is. She says, hey, you, you got that memo, right? You know Jim over in Accounts and Receivables. He, he, you, know, you know he did such and such, and that's why we have to do all this now. And you, you're in that moment, and you're thinking, you, you're just being cordial. You're saying, yeah, oh, that's, that's interesting. You know, I just need my, my, my water. Thank you very much. I just want to get my water. And then she poses this question. She says, what do you think about Jim? And now you're in a moment. Now you have the opportunity to decide, I don't really care to share my opinion about Jim, and, and you have the opportunity to say, I really don't care to gossip, but you fear that person's reaction because at the very least, you don't want to end up being the topic of the water cooler gossip uh, congregation when you leave, right? That's, that's, that's peer pressure. Another scenario could be this. What about your boss asks you to do something? It's not necessarily ethical. It's not necessarily something you want to do, um, but he does it in the name of profit. He asks you to do it in the name of of advancing your career, or he asks you to do it in the name of playing, keeping your job. Well, that would be a moment of peer pressure as well. So I would challenge you that we each face peer pressure, and, and here's the deal. As Christians, we face it as well. You, haven't, you don't have to be a Christian for very long to know that there's certain environments where being a Christian um, is just frowned upon, where actually being one, let alone actually living like one, and so because of that, you have learned where those places are, or you've experienced the mocking and the ridicule of being a Christian in that moment. And because of that, you already anticipate when you're about to go into a scenario, whether it's at work, wherever it is, and you know that for me to be a Christian here, I am potentially going to get ridiculed. I'm potentially going to get mocked. And so you actually, without even realizing it sometimes, you act a different way in that environment simply for the sake of, avoiding a moment of peer pressure.
That is fearing people, what the scriptures call fearing people. And the scriptures call this a dangerous trap. And I'm going to pose to you today that this re- for this reason, we don't have to fear people, and we actually can fear the Lord. Because peer pressure, that'll be the next slide, peer pressure is an intense moment. And I'm not going to deny that. I'm not going to uh, try and make you guys think that you can go into a peer pressure, a moment of peer pressure without the intensity of that, or you're going to not be, have to feel that. That's exactly what it is. But it's an intense moment where you actually can experience God, and you can prove your identity as a committed Christian. And to do that, we're going to go to Psalm 119 today. And uh, Psalm 119 is actually on page 706 in your pew Bibles. And we're going to go, strangely enough, to, to Psalm 119. You might be surprised that we're going to a psalm, but what's cool about this psalm, this psalm was written specifically by a person who was in the midst of what seems to be a moment of peer pressure. It, it could be classified as persecution, but it's not what we typically think of as persecution. It's not, it's not the, um, the kind of persecution uh, that we usually think of in biblical times, meaning like the person was being threatened that they were going to lose their life or that they were going to be imprisoned. We don't really seem to see that that is happening at all in this person's life. What we know about the writer of Psalm 119 is very little other than what he describes in this, in this passage. And what he describes in this passage is his experience. We do know that, we, we, well, writers think that it's one of three people. It was either written by David... Um, which would make sense because of some of the things that we know that David went through in his life. It could have been written by Daniel, which would also make sense that it was written either during the Babylonian captivity or, or after, um, or, or by Ezra. And each of these, we could each kind of see maybe moments where each of these guys were committed to living for the Lord and could have been experiencing persecution of some sort, or as I like to say, just for our modern minds, peer pressure. And what we know about Psalm 119 is Psalm 119 is all about all about exalting God and exalting God for giving the writer the law. 600 plus do's and don'ts from God. Specifically, the do's and don'ts that God gave the people of Israel. And I don't know about you, but I don't get all excited about do's and don'ts. But that's exactly what this writer does. And you know what? I think I understand why, as I become a Christian, why the writer is so crazy about this. The writer is so crazy about this word that God had given him, the law, it's what he had at the time. We have our whole Bible, which is more than just a list of do's and don'ts. It's, it's way more than that, and we can talk more about that another time. But, but what we do know is that, God, is that this guy was so crazy about the word of God, so crazy about the law. And we're going to say the word of God for us because it's the whole Bible now. We're going we're gonna to see what he's saying here. He was so crazy about it because he understood that God was his father and that God had given those, those do's and don'ts to him as a loving father guiding him. And so he knew that, and so he was actually praising God for it. He was asking God for help to live for it, and he was asking God for help um, in the midst of these intense moments to not turn aside from it. And he was committing himself. He was saying, God, no matter what, I promise I will follow you. I will obey you. And this is what he says in the midst of uh, of this prayer. And starting in verse 49, he says this. He says, Remember the word to your servant, upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort and my affliction, for your word has given me life. The proud have me in great derision, yet I do not turn aside from your law. 
I remembered your judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. This has become mine because I kept your precepts. There's three things I want you to notice about peer pressure that we can get from this text. First thing is that this is no surprise to us. Peer pressure, why peer pressure is so intense is because it actually cuts personally at our personal identity. It cuts deep at our personal identity. If you notice, specifically in verse 51, you see that the writer is being personally attacked. He says, the proud have me in great derision. And then we also know what's really going on here. The proud, in other, trans, in other, in other parts of, this, uh, of the Bible, proud is actually described as the people that he's describing are people who have no care for God. They either think that God doesn't exist or that God has no bearing on their life and that anything God has given them, you just be a fool to follow God, basically, is who, these, is who the proud people in here would be described as. So here's this man. He's being personally attacked because we know that he's identified himself as Jehovah. And you see that on the, second, on the second part of it, in verse 56, it says, this has become mine. Or another way of saying it is this has become my possession or this has become my situation. Why? Because I kept your law. And so before these proud people, this is who he is. He is Jehovah's law keeper. He's that, he's that guy that does whatever Jehovah has said, whatever Jehovah has written. This guy is going to, he's, he's the kind of guy that, that if you even ask him, why, why are you doing that? Well, because this is what Jehovah has told me to do. This is what the, the Bible says, and this is why I do it. And so they are intensely mocking him. That word derision could be also translated deride. Some of your translations might translate it scorn or mock. It's an intense moment where they are personally ridiculing him, telling him that he's essentially a fool for obeying God. He's a complete fool. And it's interesting, I would say that what we, you and I need to think about in this moment is that you and I actually have an identity as Christians as well. And that you and I need to, need to rest in that because that's exactly where this guy was in this situation. I just want to give you a few ideas about who you are in Christ. First and foremost, this is, as, as the writer's identity, especially before these, these people, was Jehovah's lawkeeper, your identity in Christ is alive to God. Alive to God, or living for God. I get that from Romans 6, uh, verses 2 through 4, and then most specifically verse 11. Romans 6 says this, it says, Since we, as Christians, have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism? That's an identity statement. You were identified with Jesus. And we joined him in his death. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. Also an identity statement. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. And here's where he really gets specific. He says, so you also should consider yourselves, this is your identity, to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God. That's an identity statement. Consider yourselves alive to God. Not only are you alive to God, but you're also chosen by God. And Jesus said this of you as a Christian. He said, John 15, in John 15, verse 16, he says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. You're alive to God, chosen by God. That's your identity. And you are righteous. You're right with God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. It says, He made Jesus, 
him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. There was, a, there was an identity transaction there. Your identity as a sinner was given to Jesus, and Jesus' identity is perfectly right before the Father, and all that that means was given to you. That's your identity. And then, not only are we alive to God, not only are we chosen, not only are we righteous, but we're also valuable. And I don't know if how many of you, but for me, that's, that's hard for me to hear sometimes and hard for me to believe. And I don't know, but some of you probably right now are thinking, valuable? Well, let me show you. Ephesians 2.10 is said this way. We are God's masterpiece. That's pretty wild, right? I think, when I think of that statement, I think of, I think of, like, masterpiece makes me go to, like, you know, a good, a beautiful work of art. How many of you, right now, think, I'm that beautiful work of art right there? That's me. I, I don't, typically. But that's exactly what God says. He says, we are his masterpiece, and he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Let me just challenge you on this point. You want to know why I think we fear people so much? Is because we let people do what God is supposed to do for us. We let people ident- identify us when God has identified us as Christians. We let people tell us what we live for when God has told us what we live for. We let people tell us whether or not we're valuable. And we, we, we look to people to give us a sense of value. And when they don't do that, or when they actually go in the negative to that, we will change so that we can get that sense of value back. But God has said, you are valuable. Think about how valuable God has proven you are. God came down from the glories of heaven, being worshipped by angels. He took on flesh, lived a perfect life, and he did it not because he wanted simply to be glorified and wanted everybody to recognize it, although he did do that, but what he did do was because he said, you are valuable to me. You are so valuable that not only am I going to come down from heaven and give up the praises of angels to be ridiculed, mocked, and scorned in your place, I will go so far as to shed my very blood and die for you. Nothing says value like Jesus dying for you. Somebody willing to die for you so that you could be, the scriptures say, become a son of glory. That's your new identity now. And as a Christian, and let me tell you this, if you're not a Christian, there is nothing that the world is ever going to give you that's going to tell you that you are valuable like God coming to this earth, dying on a cross, and rising from the dead for you. Nothing. There's nothing out there except for God himself and the person of Jesus Christ that's ever going to give you a sense of value like he's going to give you. If you're not a Christian, you're going to look for people and you're going to look for things that are going to, to try and give you a sense of value, to try and give you a sense of security, to give you a sense of acceptance and love, and nothing is going to provide that for you except for, the, except for God, except for God who created you, except for God who planned you. He planned for you to live in this time, and he provided a way for you to make, your, him, to make you right with him, and he did it by actually sacrificing his very life for you. The gospel is the only thing that screams to the depths of your spirit and soul your value. And if you're not a Christian, 
you, you can't experience that until you recognize that you, like, a, like all people, have a problem, and that's sin in your life. And that sin has, and that sin is something that you know is there. You, you, you have broken God's laws, and so have I. And you know that before a holy and righteous God, you, you, there's nothing you can ever do that's ever going to pay God back. And just one thing you've done wrong, whatever it is, I'm sure you could come up with a list of five or six of them real quick, is more than enough to send you to hell before a holy and righteous God. And an eternal God, that's a problem. An eternal God, in order to pay an eternal weight of sin, a weight of sin for, 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 for grieving an eternal God is going to take all of eternity. So hell is not something that you just go to for a while and then you finally pay it off, but it's a real place that will, you'll spend all of eternity there. And the problem is, is, is that, that we're right now separated from God. We're right now unable to experience the value that God has said he has given. And until we recognize that God has come to rescue us, that God is a rescuer and a redeemer, that God has come in the person of Jesus Christ and he lived the life that you couldn't live and he died the death you deserve to die and he rose from the dead and he give, has given you a solution to your problem. And that, and that not only is it a solution to your problem, he actually has said, you're so valuable to me that all the things that you've ever longed for, you can experience in me. And you can experience that and the real, the real problem you have is that you need a relationship with God. And God has given the answer to provide that for you. And he's done it through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the only thing that you need to do is recognize that God, the scriptures say, has provided you a gift. It says, the weight of sin, or the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, God has offered a gift, and it's in the person of Jesus Christ. And that gift is eternal life, a relationship with him. And just like we just left Christmas, right? And, 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 my wife bought me some really great gifts, and some other people did too. And if I just said, it's great that you got me the gift, but I left it under the tree, all that they purchased for me, all the things that they, all, all as valuable as those gifts might be, I'm never going to be able to experience them until I open them and, and enjoy them. And the same is true for you. If you have never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you have, God has offered you a gift that you have not opened and, and, and are enjoying. And you need to receive that gift. And the scriptures say it's very clear, you receive it by trust. And you trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that what he did was more than enough to raise you, and to, or what, what he did was more than enough to make you um, his child and to save you from your sin and to give you the hope of, of heaven and to give you a relationship with him now where you can experience um, value, love, and acceptance that only he can offer you. And you don't have to look for that from people. And I just want to go back to that again. As a Christian, you... You and I, we struggle with peer pressure because we look to it from people. We look to it from pe we look to our value rather from people, and God has already established that value. And that's why I want to go to my next my next thought is not only is peer pressure going to cut deep at your personal identity, but it is actually a moment when you can experience the presence of God. I want you to notice this: the writer in this moment he remembered God. You can see it in verse 55, and it's all over this text, but verse 55 it says, I remembered your name in the night, O Lord, and I kept your law. That word night, it could literally be night, but I think in the context of this whole passage, I think it's this, this dark moment that he's in. I remembered your name, I remembered who you are in the middle of this dark moment, and I kept your law. And not only did he remember God, but he also remembered God's word. 
And you see that in verse 50 and in verse 52. He says, this is my comfort and my affliction. Referencing verse 49, your word to your servant. Your word has given me life. Verse 52, I remembered your judgments of old, O Lord, and I have comforted myself. In those two texts, you know, it said when, God, when he remembered God's word to him, there was two results. He was comforted and he had hope. He was comforted and he had hope. And as Christians, you and I, we need to remember who God is and his word as well. Who is God? Well, we could sit and talk a long time about who God is, but just to give you just a little bit of an encouragement to think about, God is the self-existent eternal one. He is the creator and sustainer. And a little more personal to that, he's your personal creator and personal sustainer. You breathe because he says you can breathe. You live because he's chosen you to live. And it gets even more personal to that. As a Christian, God is your father. Romans 8.15. I love Romans 8.15. It says that you can call him Abba, and in the original language, that would have been like daddy. And so God is my daddy. That's my daddy. And there's nothing that humbles me and makes me more uncomfortable, but yet comforts me and encourages me more than when I call God daddy. I, I, I pray to God, and when I pray to God, I often like to call him, I just start my prayers with daddy. Daddy. And that feels really weird as a man to do that. It feels really strange as an adult male to do that. But, man, there is nothing like knowing that God is your daddy. That God loved me personally. That he has established my life with purpose and meaning. And that he thinks I am so valuable and he loves me so much. And that he wants to, as a good daddy would, lead me, grow me up, and make me into the man that he intends me to be. To not only do all those things, but to protect me. And to guard me and to comfort me and to want the best for me. And that's the same for you. That's who God is. He's your, he's your daddy. And because of that, God is so trustworthy. Why would I not trust God and what he has told me and what he's asked me to do? And so why would I not trust God if God has given me some kind of instruction or some kind of direction? Wouldn't I trust him as my daddy? That whatever it is that I need to do, no matter the intensity of a moment that it seems like it's going to be so hard to do, that that's actually God's best for me, and that as a, as a loving daddy, he wants nothing but the best for me. If I remember who God is, and I remember his word to me, I can actually experience God in the midst of an intense moment like peer pressure, and I, like the writer, can have comfort and hope. There's comfort and hope to be known in a moment of peer pressure. And not only... Is, does it cut deep at your personal identity? Not only can God be experienced, but finally, peer pressure can be a moment. It is an intense moment, but it's a moment when you actually have the ability to prove your true identity as a committed Christian. And this really gets down to the how-to. The how-to. And to do that, I just want to give you two words. I want to give you the first word, remember, and the second word, resolution. So I want you to say it with me. Remember. Remember. Resolution. Resolution. First word, remember. We need to do what I just said. We need to remember who God is. If we remember who God is as our father, if we remember who God is as our daddy, as we remember him, if we remember that, then man, that's going to help us 
to, to then remember who we are and who our identity is in him. And it's going to give us strength and encouragement. And if there's any moment that I, that I know that we, that we often really do talk a lot about your desperate need, I, I put it this way, a desperate need for you to spend time with the Lord daily, for you to spend time with the Lord alone, for you to spend time with the Lord in his word and in prayer, because when you do that, you are going to be reminded of who he is and who you are and your desperate need for him and his promise to lovingly care for you as a father throughout the day. And in a moment of, pers- of, of persecution or peer pressure like I'm describing here, this is a moment. Those are moments for you to, in that moment, remember, God is my daddy. He's, he loves me and wants the best for me. And I know, and there's a moment to remember whatever he's given you f- for, for direction, either to be openly Christian in that moment or to do something you know God would want you to do in that moment. It's a, it's a moment to remember who God is. So remember is the first one. And then second, resolution. Say it with me. Remember? Remember. Resolution. And this is your resolution. This is our New Year's resolution. Uh, it's the title of the sermon, Keep Your Shirt On. And I really want to be careful when I'm, when I'm here in this place. Like, I don't want to sound irreverent in any way. I, I love Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. And I don't want any of you to think that in any way I am making it so simple that it's irreverent. But I just want to give you a way to remember this and to have a real resolution. So the resolution is this. It's to keep my Jesus shirt on. To keep my Jesus shirt on. And to do that, I want to give you an illustration. And the illustration, I think, will really drive this home. And uh, it might actually cause uh, me, this might be my last time I, have to pre- I get to preach a sermon uh, because, of, because of what I'm about to do. So, now, now remember, the sermon is keep your, shir- your shirt on. So it's not, it's not the fact that I'm taking my shirt off right now. But it happens to be the fact of what I'm actually <laughs> doing. <laughs> Woo! You know, it's weird. I feel a little uncomfortable right now. But, but, I know, I know it's strange, right? Probably the, if you were here with me in the first sermon, I shared how I'm not crazy about Dunkin' Donuts. Like, I'll drink it and some of their lattes I can, I can actually enjoy, but, but I'm not crazy about Dunkin'. And then, and then not only am I not crazy about Dunkin', and that might have caused you to, like, say, how in the world can I ever listen to this guy ever again? I'm, I'm totally shut out since the first sermon. I just hear, bah, 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 bah. But now, not only that, but I am also not a Patriots fan. I, I am, a, and worse yet, I'm like a Bills fan. I know, I'm like a polar bear in Florida or something. It's kind of weird. It's like almost like I don't belong. Like I do not belong here. But, that, but the reality is this. I, wanna, I, I want you to, to notice how many of you reacted to the fact that I showed you my identity as a sports fan, specifically not only a sports fan, but a Bills fan. How many of you, if you didn't react to it but heard the reactions, heard... What could have been classified as scorning and mocking? <laughs> I, I, I think I felt it. I certainly felt it. I certainly feel it. Bill's eyes are really, really strong right now. Um, here's, here's what I want to point out to you really quick. You know, isn't it funny? Isn't it funny how, as sports fans, we are so driven to, not only do we sacrifice time and money, not only do we sacrifice uh, our Sunday afternoons, amen, um, not, only, not only do we do, any, do those things, but we will also spend time, money, and we will actually go into environments that we would classify as hostile environments with 
are shirts that identify us with the team that we have decided we are going to be a sports fan of. Isn't it funny that we do that? Now, if you're not a sports person, I'm sorry, but let me pose it to you another way. I used to, I'm really into music, so when I was in high school, man, it was no problem for me to wear my favorite band t-shirt. It was no problem for me to wear my favorite, um, my favorite style of clothing, whether it was I was really into different things at the time, so I might wear some really different stuff, like paint my nails or something at that time. I'm not even kidding, I, I, I did. But, but the point being, I would be okay with doing that, and for why? Because for some reason, let's just go back to the sports analogy, for some reason we seem so okay with no matter the moment, I mean, you see it. You see Yankees fans at, at, at Fenway Stadium. You see Red Sox fans at Yankee Stadium. You see Bills fans at Gillette Stadium. You see Patriots fans at Ralph Wilson Stadium. And you know they're going into a hostile environment. You know they're going to get ridiculed, mocked, and or worse. And yet they are totally secure to do that. You ready? Why is it not the same with Jesus? Why is it not the same with Jesus? I would say to you that you and I struggle with remembering who God is. But more than that, we struggle with allowing people to establish our sense of security, our sense of acceptance, value, and love. And those are meant to be given primarily from God. And because of that, we allow people to dictate who we think we are and how we're going to act, at least functionally in a moment, and we will take our Jesus shirt off. Let me give you two examples of how it happened in my life recently. First example was, is a negative one. Uh, I was getting back from work. I, I work for Interstate Batteries. I deliver, I, I sell and, and deliver batteries for Interstate Batteries. And I was coming back, unloading my truck. And as I was unloading my truck, one of the other guys came up to me. And he's a pretty emotional guy, pretty energetic guy, um, pretty intense guy. And uh, he wanted to specifically come up to me to complain about things that were happening. And you know, in that moment, I could have had the opportunity right then and there to, say, to tell him, you know, I... I, I I, I can listen a little bit, but, but if you're going to start talking about people personally, I think you should talk directly to them and or talk to a boss, because I'm not a supervisor there. But, but I didn't. I didn't. And I had the opportunity, even, even at some point, he kept going, and I was just really nice and cordial, because I feared saying, you know, I don't... I think I'm at a point where I think I'm, we might be gossiping, and I really don't want to gossip. I, I, I feared doing that because then he would have said, well, why? And then I might have to say, uh, well, because I don't think I'm loving that other person very well. And I didn't. And I even had this moment when he actually said to me, what do you think about so-and-so? And now in that moment, thankfully, I put on kindness and patience and all of those good things, and I said nice things about the person because I refused to put on anger, bitterness, or any type of wrath. And you know what he said to me? He said, you just can't be nice to anybody, can you? Or you can't be mean to anyone, can you? And in that moment, that was a, oh, oh, he's starting to, he's, I, gotta, I gotta hide, I gotta hide. And so, and so I actually, in that moment, refused 
to be who I know I am in Christ and actually refuse to act like I should in Christ and covered my identity up and functionally covered it in that I did not tell him I don't really care to gossip because I feared him, my, him asking, well, why? And then I might have to actually share who I am and say, well, uh, I'm a Christian and, um, I, you know, honestly, I just, I just I know that I love God and I want to love others and that wouldn't be a very loving thing to do, honestly. And so I hid my identity in Christ. Another moment ha- happened like this. I started with this guy. It's probably, you know, I think with a lot of people, we often have to kind of take, put the shirt on or take it off. And I'll give you a passage that really descri- describes it in just a minute. But, but I'm, 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 deliver- I'm going in to see a guy and uh, see a dealer and I'm, I'm going to take a look at, at what he needs for batteries. And as I go in, I do what I always do and say, hey, how's it going today? And immediately the guy says, couldn't have been a worse day. Things are as bad as they possibly could be. They couldn't be any worse. Whoa, okay. Could you, you know, I could just say, well, I'm sorry to hear that and just leave it at that. But instead, I asked, okay, could you, well, do you care to share? Um, I'd be happy to listen. And at that moment, he proceeded to share with me how his father had attempted to kill himself the night before. And he was unsuccessful. And he had spent the entire night at the hospital. While he, why he was at work was, was a bit of a mystery, but he was there, and he proceeded to share what was going on and where his family was at and what was happening. And, and I had the privilege of listening to that, but at that moment, I knew that I had this opportunity. Here's the opportunity that I had. I had the opportunity to say very cordial, very nice things, kind of like, you know, uh, man, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. Uh, I'll be thinking of you. Um, you know, or even another culturally, excuse me, acceptable thing to say, I'll be praying for you, our prayers will be with you, you know, something like that. But I had the privilege, okay, you said, you know what, I'm not going to just say those things, I'm going to do this, I am going to do it. You know, you know, I actually am a Christian, and um, I would love to pray for you, and I'd love to pray for your father and your family. What's your father's name? Oh, what's going to happen? I'm afraid. What's he going to say? You know what happened? It was actually a really cool moment. He said, you know what? I, I am not a Christian. He proceeded to go on and share how he was not a Christian, but that how God, how clearly as I got to listen to what he was sharing, how God had been working in his life, and God had been pursuing him, and God had been showing him how much God loves him, and he, had, he is somewhere close, but not quite there at the point where he just might become a Christian real soon. And I got the experience in that moment to, in that moment, experience with God love for him, the love of God for him. Because I was in that moment not going to do what I've done in the past in anticipation of a moment of peer pressure, just hide my identity, take my, Jesus, my proverbial Jesus shirt off or cover it. Instead, I was who I am in Christ and I did what I know I was called to do in that moment and I, sh- I just let him know, hey, I'm a Christian and I'd like to pray for you. I, don't, I can't do much more than that, but I can at least do that. And then I had the great privilege of experiencing God in that moment and proving my true identity as a committed Christian. So here's, here's how it says it in the scriptures. Listen to this. Very interestingly, it says it in Ephesians 4. It says it this way in Ephesians 4. Verses 20, 
22. But, uh, but concerning your old self, that you put off, concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Verse 24, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. There's this description of put off and put on. And I just want to encourage you that that is really what we do on a daily basis. Before, when we start with the Lord daily, remember who he is and remember who we are, we're putting on Christ. And then daily we have the opportunity to put on our, our Jesus shirt, put off our old self, and in moment by moment, as a matter of fact, we have the privilege to keep it on in a moment of intense peer pressure. Peer pressure is an intense moment, but it's a moment where you and I can experience God and prove our true identity as committed Christians. It's going to be tough. They're, they, they, are, they are tough moments. And they're real moments, no matter how old you are, no matter what walk of life you're in. They cut deep at your personal identity. And I don't really cut deep at your personal identity, but there's hope and comfort to be found there because you can experience God and because you can walk in, you can experience, you can prove your true identity as a committed Christian. And that's really what I want to encourage you on. Imagine if that was your resolution. Imagine if your resolution this year wasn't just to become a better person or to become a better-looking person. But imagine if your resolution was, I'm going to do what God has instructed me to do. I'm going to continue to grow in this putting off of my old self and this putting on of my new self. I'm going to continue to grow in remembering who God is and who I am, and I'm going to let him establish my value and, my love, and, and, and who I am and my security in who I am because of who I know he is and who he says I am. I am not going to let people dictate how I respond in situations anymore. I am going to stop fearing people, and I'm going to start fearing the Lord. So say with me what this resolution would be. It is to keep your Jesus shirt on. So we're going to say, we're going to say remember my resolution to keep my Jesus shirt on, and I would just encourage you, if there's nothing else that you remember from today, remember that resolution. So say it with me. Remember my resolution to what? All right, let me pray for you real quick. Father, I, uh, I thank you. I thank you for the fact that that's exactly what you are. You are our daddy. And, um, man, what a, what, a, what a privileged title to call you. And I thank you that you love each person in this room and you personally chose each person in this room that they would come to be your child if they're not yet, or if they are, that they would know that and rest in that and find their sense of security and their sense of value in you. And I thank you for the fact that the cross of Jesus screams just how valuable each of us are to you, that you would leave heaven and come to earth and that you would come to earth and receive the ridicule and mocking and ultimately the, the death that we deserved and arise from the dead and give us, and not only do that, but, but, but give us a, a real relationship with you. And that's how valuable we are to you. And God, I just pray if there's someone here or who's not a Christian, who's never, who, who's never experienced um, the moment where they recognize that only you can rescue them through the person of Jesus and, and never recognized that what they've really been struggling with for so long has been 
that they've been searching for a sense of value and security from, from people and from things. And they see right now that only you can really provide that and that that's what they've been longing for in the depths of their soul. And I pray that right now, if that's them, that they would, that they would just recognize and they would come to you by faith right now and put their trust in you and you alone to give them a new relationship with you and to receive the value and security that only you provide through Jesus, through his death and resurrection. And God, I pray that you would help us. We, like the writer, if we go into, this, into, an, into a coming moment or we anticipate a moment where we're going to be mocked and scorned and, and ridiculed as simple and foolish for the fact that we love you, Jesus, and want to live for you, I pray that we would have the same commitment that the writer does in verse 51 and we would acknowledge that the arrogant are, are deriding me, they're mocking me, but I will not turn aside from your law. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.